0: Welcome back to Beyond Prisons, I'm Brian Sonnenstein, and in this episode, my co-host Kim Wilson and I spoke with writer, activist, and attorney Andrea Ritchie about the group Interrupting Criminalization and their new report looking at the impacts of the defund the police demand from around the country in 2020. Interrupting Criminalization describes itself as an initiative that aims to interrupt and end the growing criminalization and incarceration of women and LGBTQ people of color for criminalized acts related to public order, poverty, child welfare, drug use, survival, and self-defense, including criminalization and incarceration of survivors of violence. Andrea Kim and I discuss the work that Interrupting Criminalization does and their findings on the various successes and failures activists have had with the defund police demand. Perhaps most importantly, we go through some of the ways police and the state more broadly have sought to undermine efforts to reduce policing power. We also talk about the need to experiment and fund approaches to harm that might fail on the path to abolition. Andrea Ritchie is a black lesbian immigrant whose research, litigation, organizing, and policy advocacy has focused on policing and criminalization of women and LGBT people of color. She is author of Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color, and co-author of Challenging Criminalization, A Call for a Comprehensive Philanthropic Response, Centering Black Women, Girls, and Femmes in Campaigns for Expanded Sanctuary, Say Her Name, Resisting Police Brutality Against Black Women, A Roadmap for Change, Federal Policy Recommendations for Addressing the Criminalization of LGBT People and People Living with HIV, and Queer Injustice, The Criminalization of LGBT People in the United States. A nationally recognized expert on policing issues, Andrea supports and advises numerous groups around the country. She's also a frequent author of opinion pieces making critical interventions in current debates around police sexual violence, policing of young women, responses to mental health crises, and more. Andrea is a current researcher in residence at Barnard Center for Research on Women. We have links in the episode notes to everything, including websites, social media accounts, and of course the report for both Interrupting Criminalization and Andrea. Before we dive in, a quick reminder on some ways you can help Beyond Prisons reach more people and grow our platform. If you have a few dollars to spare, you can make a one-time donation or sign up for monthly donations at beyond-prisons.com slash donate. If you can't give, but want to help us out, you can rate, review, and subscribe to the show wherever you listen. This tells the algorithms that we're good and shares the show with more people. And you can also just tell your friends, family, coworkers, and comrades about the show too. That's all for now. Thanks for listening and much love to everyone out there. Be safe. Here's our chat with Andrea Ritchie. Thank you, Andrea, for joining us. Um, I was wondering maybe, you know, just a, a solid place to start would be for you to introduce yourself a little bit and to tell folks a little bit about interrupting criminalization, what it is, who's involved, where it where it is, um, all of that. That would be great.
1: Sure. So my name is Andrea Ritchie. Um, I have been organizing and documenting and advocating and litigating and agitating around police violence for the past 25 plus years (laughs) and uh, predominantly through the lens of the experiences of black women, girls, queer and trans people and um, women, girls, queer and trans people of color. Um, Been a researcher, um, an organizer, a lawyer, a police misconduct attorney. A policy advocate um, and a writer (laughs) and um, i also have uh, written uh, co-authored a book called queer injustice the criminalization of lgbt people in the united states and co-authored the say her name resisting police brutality against black women report with uh, kim crenshaw and the african-american policy forum and uh most recently uh, wrote a book called Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women mm-hmm. of Color. That's kind of who I am and what I've been doing. The other thing I always feel like it's important for me to say is that I'm a black woman, I'm a lesbian, and I'm an immigrant. And I say those things because, one, they may not be apparent from looking at me, but two, because they deeply inform how I understand these issues and why I come at policing issues through that lens, both as a survivor of police and interpersonal violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and through the lens of those identities and of the communities that I'm part of, um, it often means that I'm uh, focused on looking, making sure that we're looking at the whole picture of what policing and criminalization and mass incarceration and deportation and detention looks like, um, rather than focusing um, solely on kind of one standard experience. So in some ways that's where interrupting criminalization came from. I was doing an interview the other day with someone because, you know, Mariam's got a new book coming out. Everyone should Mm -hmm. get it. It's called We Do It: Do This Till We Free Us from Haymarket Books. Um, And I was doing an interview with uh, another Chicago reader, I think, about Mariam and the book. And I was trying to remember, like, when I first met Mariam. And (laughs) I think I nailed it down to 2005. And it was at the Insight, um, what was then called Women of Color Against Violence, but I think is now called Feminists of Color Against Violence conference in New Orleans in 2005 and I think I first met and I'll actually picture it like I first met Mariam where she was giving a very uh, generous and spirited critique of how the conference space was not accessible to or centering the experiences of the young women that she had come Mm -hmm. to the conference um, with the Rogers Park Young Women's Action Team and um, who, you know, ostensibly as young black women from Rogers Park in Chicago, um, the conference was really kind of about them and their experiences, but she she and the young women um, felt pretty clear that it didn't feel like it was a space that was created for them. So um, that's when I first met Mariam, but we have crossed paths in many um, contexts and in the context of insight and organizing in Chicago and supporting groups like the young women's empowerment project in Chicago. Um, and so we have, Consistently, sort of been in the same spheres and circles, talking about uh, policing and criminalization and um, abolition through the lens of Black women and girls' experiences, and also through the lens of folks who came into the work as anti-violence workers, as survivors, um, and looking at police and prison and prison industrial complex abolition through the lens of wanting more and better for survivors like ourselves and the people in our families and communities that we care about Mm -hmm. um, than certainly the current system offers. So um, Interrupting Criminalization is a project we started together in 2018 at the Barnard Center for Research on Women um, at their Social Justice Institute. And basically, our goal is to literally find all the ways that we can to interrupt criminalization of women, girls, and trans people in all of the places and all of the ways that it takes place, obviously disproportionately impacting black, indigenous, migrant, disabled, queer and trans women. Um, And to sort of do that through a framework that we developed in collaboration with a lot of national organizations, and you can find out more about them on our website, Mm -hmm. um, called Six Ds Until She's Free, so really, doing our work to document where those interactions happen, because for women, girls, queer, and trans people, policing happens in exactly the same ways as it happens for men um, and cisgender and heterosexual folks. And it happens in additional locations and through additional institutions and places, through medical care, through productive care, through um, uh, what's called you know, the family police, basically child welfare, or the mm-hmm. foster system. And uh, and many other settings, you know, policing of sex work, policing of parenting, et cetera. So mm-hmm. we um, and policing of poverty. So we want to make sure that we were documenting where it's happening, that we're decriminalizing all the. Um, you know, all the conduct that's bringing people into contact with the criminal punishment system, including decriminalization of self-defense when you're a survivor and the system has offered you nothing um, mm-hmm. to protect you or prevent violence against you. And then you have to take your life into your own hands and then get criminalized for it, which is the case for many, 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 many incarcerated uh, people in women's prisons. And um then to divert people out of the system as quickly as possible and with as little police contact as possible, to decarcerate people, uh, to divest and dismantle from systems of policing and punishment, and to dream uh, new approaches to safety that will actually generate (laughs) safety um, in a genuine and lasting way for um, everyone in our communities and not just uh, a privileged few. So that's the sort of origins and theory behind interrupting criminalization, and that's um, kind of what our work looks like on the day-to-day, doing some of that work ourselves and supporting groups around the country who are doing it as well.
0: I love that so much. Thank you for sharing that. Um, And so, you you know, you all, uh, and I guess the report that we're going to talk about today, the lessons from 2020, uh, the the defund police demand, you know, I, I guess for folks who have not yet checked out the interrupting criminalization website, in which we'll link uh, to it in the show notes, you know, you are documenting and gathering information and knowledge and tactics and lessons from uh, different aspects of the movement around the country, different questions that are, are being uh, taken up and not just putting out reports. I think you, you've put out some videos um, in the past as well. Wait, would that be the right description of sort of the, the work that you produce?
1: Yeah, and then I should, I uh, don't want to leave out the fact that the, Mariam and I are not alone in this work, in addition to mm-hmm. all the, you know, part the the organizations that are part of the 60s network. Um, Woods Urban uh, was, has been with us pretty much almost since the beginning of interrupting criminalization and only recently left to become the um, communications director at Critical Resistance, an organization that we all hold dear in our hearts. So Woods mm-hmm. is still, in many ways, <laughs> part of the interrupting criminalization family. And uh, even a Gao. Um, is the person who makes logistically all these things happen. So Mm -hmm. I I particularly wanted to raise that because Eva is responsible for our website and making it beautiful and our newsletter and also for creating, yeah, digital tools for having these conversations. You know, Mariam and I both are avid readers. We are voracious readers. We read many and everything that kind of comes our way, books, articles, uh, zines, et cetera. But we realized that that's not true for everybody <laughs> and so mm-hmm. um in addition to kind of you know maintaining a, a very informative and often hilarious um twitter account in which uh you know mariam's communicating these ideas and you know whatever how many characters we commit them on twitter um we're constantly trying to think of new ways of getting the ideas and information out so there's mariam's a, a seasoned and longstanding and, and, um, prolific zine maker. Um, we've made videos, we have hosted many webinars. She has a series called, you know, um, building your abolitionist toolbox Mm -hmm. that, um, has many videos and workbooks. Mariam loves to make a workbook. I love to use a workbook, so it's a good combination. (laughs) Um, You know, there's uh, uh, just all the ways that we can think of to put things out. We're trying to do it, so we're reaching as many people because we need as many people as possible involved in, you know, thinking about how criminalization, well, what criminalization is and how it happens in their communities and then how they can be part of not only interrupting it, but building things in its place that will actually produce
0: safety. Beautiful. Thank you. So like I said, we were going to get into this uh, report that you recently came out with. It's a report on the lessons learned from the uh, defund police, the police demand in 2020. It is a very large report. uh, And I don't want that to scare people away. I, you know, I do really want to encourage folks to check it out. There's a lot of really good information, a lot of uh, most importantly, a lot of things to consider outside of just sort of the raw information of you know, who won with defunding, who lost, like, you know, the nitty gritty there. Um, and we're going to get into some of the the issues that uh, come up in sort of the latter half of the report. But I thought, again, just to sort of set the table um, in talking about this report, if maybe you could just talk at the high level about your basic findings in terms of the different ways that people fought for the defund the demand, the different manifestations it took, the relative successes or or failures at a high level, you know, you don't need to go into like every single campaign and and give all the details, but just sort of like your overview of, uh, of the demand in 2020.
1: Sure. I mean, um, the first thing I want to say is that this is a kind of update to a toolkit that we put out in July of 2020. Mm -hmm. Um, so I encourage, and we really hope that people will read the report in conjunction with the original toolkit and also with a few other tools we put out over the course of 2020, um, including a report called What's Next that Mariam uh, drafted and edited around building a world without police, um, kind of what are the next steps towards that. And um, a fact sheet I put out about you know, domestic violence. It's not the reason we need to keep police. In fact, it's the reason we need something more different than police <laughs> and um, something different than police, not in addition to police, different. Um, and. Um, so this report was an update uh, that we wanted to kind of reflect back um, all the incredible work that had happened over the past uh, eight or nine months around defund. And part of the motivation for that was, you know, the the fact that as soon as the Democrats, like before they even basically got into office, were already turning around and talking about how defund was a nonsensical demand it had caused them to lose seats even though it's been factually proven that everyone who supported that demand won their seat and everyone who didn't lost it and you know like or the people who didn't win who who lost their seats were not people who funded defund or supported defund and um and that you know it's just it's people sort of complaining about the slogan and and saying it's not in touch with black communities and it's coming out of you know this you know Perspective of folks who don't experience violence on a day-to-day basis and like all these critiques were coming and and we really want to reflect back that like People are actually doing this on the ground and right. you know, you can critique the slogan But actually what you disagree with is the demand right. and let's show you what the demand is looking like on the ground in terms of what people have accomplished And we also want to reflect back that in the midst of all that kind of back and forth around it people extracted 840 million dollars from police departments in 2020 and they managed to get 160 million of that at least reinvested in their communities. So it wasn't only, you know, austerity cuts across the board. People made the case for cuts and they made the case for investing in things that would bring community safety. One of the things we talk about in the report that is that it's a bit of a setup that the amount of money that got invested in community safety is so much smaller than the amount of money that got divested from cops because the idea is that we actually have to invest not only the resources that we're putting into policing, but much more in order to meet the needs that we have as communities to prevent violence and create safety. So that's one of the points you raise in the port, that's a bit of a setup to, to make less of investment than you're making a divestment, mm-hmm. um, and that we, in fact, need a lot more. Um, so we wanted to show that. And then, you know, in the wake of the white supremacist attack on the Capitol, um, an attempted coup, we also, people started to you know, including again Democrats, but just people in general started to say, Well, wait a minute, you know, look at what happened. Is this the time to defund police and we should put more money into cops and giving mm. them more access to military equipment? And so we wanted to be like, no, <laughs> this that is and and you know, there's lots of articles and videos and yeah things floating around showing that in fact police participated in, led, and military, um, condoned, facilitated um, the attack on the Capitol, that there's tremendous white supremacist, and we all know this, I mean, police are white supremacists from their inception, Um, that's Mm -hmm. their purpose and origin, but, you know, there's tremendous white supremacist, um, I I don't want to say tendency, like, Politics, um, beliefs in the mm-hmm. in the police department that they enact every day, including by kneeling on George Floyd's neck or barging into Breonna Taylor's home as she sleeps, or you know shooting Rayshard Brooks while he's nap, you know taking a break in his car, whatever. that could go on and on with the names and and examples, but um, so we wanted to also like really kind of counter that and be like, no, what the attack on the Capitol. Um, on January sixth is a reason to defund the police. It shows us who police are. It shows us who they will protect and what they will protect and what they will, you know, um, stop at nothing to uphold. And uh, that at this point, giving them more money and more weapons is only <laughs> going to produce more of that. So um, we need to really radically rethink safety. So that is kind of the 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 some of the overarching sort of messages we want to put out with the report um and the top level things are are sort of what i mentioned in terms of how much Mm -hmm. people got out people also in um 25 cities secured um cancellation of contracts between the police department and the department of education to have police in schools and um got an additional 35 million out of uh paying for cops in schools and into paying for resources for students and communities so those are the wins and we wanted to reflect those back and we wanted to reflect the way people won those things. We want to reflect the evolution of the demands that people were making. You know, um, when things jumped off in Minneapolis um, after George Floyd was murdered, the folks in the Black Visions Collective and Reclaim the Block pretty quickly put out a set of demands and, you know, memes. And it was four simple demands. It was like, don't give the police department that killed George Floyd any more money. Make a (laughs) commitment that you won't give them any more money in the future. Um, take away their weapons to, that they're using to kill us and invest in community safety. I mean, it was like, and and people were literally like cutting and pasting those demands from Minneapolis into mm-hmm. petitions um, and demands in cities across the country. Um, in fact, you know, I was born in Canada and I saw a petition in like Regina, Saskatchewan, which is a place most Americans have never heard of and laugh when they hear the name. Um, uh you know, that had basically the demands for Minneapolis in the petition, right? And Mm -hmm. since then there's a whole movement in Canada to defund police that is, you know, not derivative of the one in the US, but organic to there. But Mm -hmm. what I'm trying to say is that those demands really traveled far. And then what happened over the last six months is people evolved them to meet their local communities to the, the specifics of their community budget, the specific needs of their communities for community safety. So we wanted to show the evolution of that, how things got more specific, how people got more creative, how people got more um, uh, were building more alliances with other groups and and how that shaped things. You know we wanted to show, like that in Durham, people were like, "Defund the police," and why don't you raise the wage of all the other city workers to just fifteen bucks an hour, just the minimum, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you mm-hmm. know, instead of paying for these police. Like, people were getting creative oh, yeah. about how they were building mm-hmm. solidarity with environmental justice groups, with groups working for safety for Black trans people, and 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 merging demands um, in their budget demands. So that was the overall goal, and then we want to reflect back lessons people had learned and roadblocks they'd hit and ways Mm -hmm. they got around them in some places and then questions they were left with. Um, But the last thing I want to say about the length of the report is, you know, it it is 104 pages, but it's a choose your own adventure. So you don't Mm -hmm. have to read all 104 pages. You can just go, I want to know what all these cities did, or I want to know what cities that I, that look like mine or, um, are close to me or, um, you know, who I'm, you know, politically or otherwise affiliated with, I want to Mm -hmm. know what they did. And I want or I want to know, you know, what were the lessons, or I want to know where were the roadblocks, or I want to know, like, what the questions are that people are going into things. And then the stuff that's in the appendix is just details, right? Mm -hmm. If you want an example of how Seattle built a solidarity budget, bringing together climate justice activists, labor activists, Um, folks fighting criminalization and folks fighting for, you know, tools for survivors of gender-based violence, you can go look at their budget and their principles and how they came up with that. If you want to know how to do a survey in your community about what generates safety, you can go look at that in the back. And if you want to see how to, how cities have done their surveys, you can go find that in the back. And if you want to see, you know, what the domestic violence movement is saying now about, Policing and defunding police. You can go find that, and if you want to find out, you know how Los Angeles and other cities are raising more revenue for safety, community-based safety programs. Um, you can go find that. So there's, there's really um, something, lots of different tools in there that people can use. So the, you don't have to read all of it. Is the mm-hmm. short version. Well, you should.
0: But- <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs>
2: it's like, yeah, it's. It, uh- extremely useful information. I think that's yeah. where, you know, the next question, um, that I have really, you know, is going to take us is to think more about, um, and talk about some of the, the section, uh, in that report called tricks and tensions, right? So, um, for example, one of the tricks, um, was quote, moving portions of police budget to other departments while maintaining the same power structure of personnel, and practices doesn't achieve the goals of divesting from policing and investing in community safety. End quote. And that's on page 20 for folks that um, want to go look at that. Um, and you know, one of the examples that comes up in there is about the Minneapolis uh, school districts replacing school cops with. Quote unquote, public safety support specialists um, (laughs) that were (laughs) come up with this shit. (laughs) Not a hint of sarcasm. (laughs) I mean,
1: literally, I mean, the people in Minneapolis were just outraged. They were just like, we didn't say dismantle cops to bring back cops in t shirts. Like, that's not.
2: (laughs) Like what the hell, you know, and it's uh, and the report points out that these were retired cops and prison guards, um, you know, and you talk about uh, the lack of community investment alongside of defunding the police. So, you know, if you could just give folks um a couple of examples from the report, um, we'd love to hear about that and a kind of, um, you know, what this uh, what kind of ways, right, um do we already know um, that the state is going to try right to dilute or misdirect attempts at um you know at, at reducing their power right and um yeah i mean i think that that kind of gets you know at the heart of of the question and you know the things that we're we're trying to understand a little bit better
1: yeah no and those are the critical lessons that people learned and then what was what was really great was how people learned Uh, And then shared with each other, so that people could come up with Mm -hmm. ways of like um, kind of being uh, proactive. Um, So what we learned basically is the system will do anything to preserve itself, right? And so Mm -hmm. um, that politicians will be like try and appear to be meeting the demands of the street, and you know down and uh, and painting Black Lives Matters on pavement and et cetera, but then actually just doing what. In the first toolkit, Mariam, you know, referred to as like a shell game, right? It's like, you know, uh, there's the police budget. Okay, it's gone. It's not in the police budget anymore, but uh, it's in the Department of Education budget. Like we in the New York City, that's what they did. They literally moved the, or they said they were moving. The entire budget for the cops who are in schools out of the NYPD budgets into the DOE budgets, into the Department of Education budget, and then also cutting a bunch of money from the Department of Education. So, what does that do? Does that take cops out of schools? No. Does that reduce yeah. the cops, the amount of money that we're spending on cops? No. Does it uh, change anything about their practices or the chain of command or? basically who they are no right and so then now that's just a shell game it's just and what organizers in new york called funny math you know and then and then the other uh trick that they play is they cut overtime uh money and then when the cops come back in a few months and say well we went over our overtime budget but now labor laws say you have to pay us then the (laughs) city just pays it's like i don't understand like when i overdraw my bank account the bank doesn't just cover it. (laughs) They they, they don't let me do that. Right. (laughs) Right? um, Exactly. So, so, but that's what happens for cops constantly is that they over, they overdraw their overtime budgets constantly and then use labor laws to say, you can't not pay us because this is the law. You have to pay workers for overtime. Mm -hmm. And that's a part that's, and often what they're doing with their overtime is actually getting in the way of workers' rights, but that's another story. Um, So I think, Uh, that was another piece. I think the other one is that, you know, cops sabotage. They engage in straight-up sabotage of defund efforts, right? So people in Minneapolis had learned previously in a defund fight there. and That was a thing, too, that was really important for people to understand, is that um, people who were engaged in these fights this summer, uh, most of the ones who got really far with their fights were people who had been engaged in these fights for a long time, including Minneapolis. Minneapolis didn't just wake up after... George Floyd was murdered and say, let's make this demand. They had been making the same demand for Mm -hmm. many years. And um, what they had learned is that if the police got their department budget cut, they just stopped answering certain 911 calls. And then when people complained, they would say, call your council member, they cut our money. But meanwhile, they were just sitting around, right? Like It right. wasn't, there were actually any shortage of people of to do the thing. They were just trying <laughs> to make a point, right? Yeah. And, and to get people to get their budget back. And so Seattle folks were like, "Haha, uh-huh, okay, we're not falling for that. So they put in their um, legislation around cuts that um, the department had to prioritize certain kinds of calls with with the remaining funds. So it should deprioritize calls to round up homeless people, for instance, and it should prioritize calls, you know, for assault in progress mm-hmm. and, or something like that. And, um, and that way, when the cops stop answering the calls that people feel, you know, like they want to make sure are getting answered by somebody, um, uh, then it's more obvious that they're engaged in sabotage. Because <laughs> it's like, we told you to, to prioritize these calls and you can't tell us that, uh you can't get to them on the budget that you have so um so that was some of the kind of lessons people were sharing i think um you know there's so many others i think making sure that money doesn't um move to things that are like collaborations with cops i think that was something we put Mm -hmm. in the original toolkit right which is that people be like okay We'll move money from the police budget to um, a police-community partnership with, you know, social workers. But their social workers are still getting paid by the cops, and the cops still run the show. When the show, when for instance, for co-response for people with unmet mental health needs, right? Mm-hmm. There's a model where, okay, cops recognize that maybe they're not the best person to respond to someone with unmet mental health needs, and a half to two-thirds of people who are killed by police are people who are or are perceived to be in a mental health mm-hmm. crisis. And so now people are like, "Oh, we could cut the number of police killings in half if we just found a different way to go. Maybe we'll send a social worker out with the cops." No, the cops still control everything about that scene, right? Yeah. And including shooting people. So yeah. um, you know, sort of really, that's a pitfall, right? Is that the cops are going to try to insinuate themselves into everything um, mm-hmm. that you try and make as an alternative? So those were just a few of the kind of tricks and tensions and pitfalls um that we identified. There's lots more, but. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I, I really loved that. Uh, I mean, I love the structure of this report, but I loved that this was just included as a section. I mean, I I don't want to say that it's like an explicitly abolitionist thing, but it definitely like warmed my abolitionist heart to see that kind of thing, like brought out into the open and, and talked about, you know, like, I, I feel like I read a lot of these reports and this is the kind of thing like looking ahead and preempting that that you always want to see, and that is always a question lingering, but isn't always like out in the open like this. So, I appreciated that, and you know, and let obviously, me just let me yeah, just say, please, like, please. make no
1: mistake, this is an abolitionist report written by two abolitionists, right? right. <laughs> right, right, right. And and at the beginning of the report, there's a chart that sort of talks about the relationship of defund demands to abolition, right? right. And talks about the fact that defund is a step towards abolition. Mm -hmm. It's not just a budgetary exercise. It's not austerity budgets and cops should get their fair share of cuts. It's not, you know, it's not us just saying, oh, it's not fair that you're cutting the youth employment program in New York um, entirely (laughs) um, and continuing to give more money to cops. We're not just saying that we're saying actually these two things are related and mm-hmm. their problem. Exactly. So um that's that I just wanted to be clear about yeah that, That's where these recommendations are coming from. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it it was an important point um, in the report talking about, you know, the quote unquote alternatives, because we hear about this all the time. We usually end up fighting with people on Twitter about this, although I don't fight people on Twitter about anything. Um, (laughs) And that's something I learned from Mariam a long time ago (laughs) on Twitter um, (laughs) about anything. Um, but yeah, it's just, you know, where, uh, policymakers will ask for, you know, evidence-based alternatives and, you know, it's like, if you can't present any, then they're like, well, sorry, can't do anything about it. Um, (laughs) you know,
1: I'm sure you've heard Mariam rant about that. Um, and I will just do my best to replicate her rant, which I share, which is, I'm sorry, you've been getting a hundred billion dollars a year for decades to do policing and meanwhile in our spare time with no money we were supposed to have a fully formed alternative that's like ready to pull off the Mm -hmm. shelf and implement in your town um, as soon as you woke up and realized that maybe it was time to consider something else this is Mm -hmm. ridiculous this is a setup that is ridiculous (laughs) and then and then I think also you know we talked Um, in the first toolkit about um, this crisis of imagination, right? Because people Mm -hmm. then think that every police function needs a replacement that kind of looks like police, but in t-shirts, right? Like, And and that's the part that- Do nothing. Exactly. We're really Mm -hmm. trying to get people, um, and we talk about an exercise that um, folks in Minneapolis did with their community where they just ask people to put up like, just write up all the places you see police in your community. Mm -hmm. And then look at that list and be like, does anyone need to be in that place? And if so, who or what? (laughs) Right. Um, But Mm -hmm. there's possibility that the cops don't need to just be out in the park or on the corner or um, policing people who might be trading sex to survive or, um, you know, chasing young people who are smoking weed. Like maybe Mm -hmm. nobody needs to do that. Maybe we just need to leave that alone and then make you know available to people supports if they need them right if you're mm-hmm. you know there uh, should be somewhere is like are you feeling a way about how much weed you're smoking come on in let's talk about it and it doesn't mean you have to be in a program and it doesn't mean you can't leave once you admit that you might have a problem and it doesn't mean that i'm gonna force you to abstain or into treatment it just means we can talk about it like period, right or it's, you know
2: yeah, you're yeah. Sex
1: and you don't want to be doing that right anymore and you Let's, let's make sure that you have other options and, and yeah. multiple other options and that they are other options that pay just as well and better. And that, you know, are as flexible and, you know, in terms of schedule or what, like, let's just make
2: sure you have what you need basically. And, and, exactly. and, and, yeah. and not and step away from the kind of carceral models um, exactly. that we have, currently have for pretty much everything, everything. literally
0: everything. <laughs> I feel like that dovetails nicely with some other thoughts that i had reading different aspects of the the report and, and just sort of thinking about it and um you know in, in one of the subsequent sections i think it's called the, the key questions going forward um i think number four is about transformative justice and in the report you write quote um and this is an, an example of like a key question going forward uh you write Funders and policymakers are creating false dichotomies between community based strategies focused on meeting material needs and strategies focused on creating and building transformative justice processes to address conflict, harm, and need beyond policing. The reality is that both are needed investment in meeting people's material needs through direct income support and service provision, and investments in untested experiments to address current gaps in community based safety strategies which are often perceived as risky, but are in fact essential to building the skills, relationships, and infrastructure necessary to achieve genuine and lasting community safety. Um, And I I feel like you touched on this a little bit there where, you know, you're saying it's not just take the money away and do nothing. It's not like an austerity budget. It's, you know, it's not just about uh, moving money into other parts of the government, but also about working towards something right like working towards a a world and a set of social relationships uh, that we feel is actually healthier and ensures safety more than the current arrangement that we have Um, and so i wanted you to talk about this aspect of um, the need to experiment and take risks and develop strategies for safety that would make policing obsolete while also demanding defunding and for investments in those people people's needs, because I feel like getting, uh, and I and I know, and I want to acknowledge that, obviously, again, that work has been ongoing and already exists, already happening on the ground. Uh, transformative justice is obviously maybe the, the most familiar example of an area in which people are doing this experimentation. Um, but I always feel like that's sort of one of the things that is missing a little bit from the conversation when people are focusing on, like, investments and, uh, and like taking money and power away from the police. Can you talk a little bit about about this area of experimentation and, and sort of pushing people into taking those risks and developing those strategies?
1: Yes. And first I wanna just um, congratulate you on making it through that sentence. I was listening to you read it being like, I have a problem with long sentences, but then I was like, wow, he needs to sort of be like a deep sea diver to finish this sentence in one breath, my God. Okay,
0: so I'm an editor, for, so I know thanks, I know thanks, I
1: thanks for getting through it. Um, note to self, really work on those sentences. Um, <laughs> uh, but I think that we, yeah, what we we're getting at is that you know people are trying to frame it as if there's like two schools of thought, right that like there's definitely research out there that shows the best violence prevention strategy, if we're talking about domestic violence or other forms of violence is access to safe, affordable, accessible housing. <laughs> and. Mm-hmm. Um, Exactly. And, and and living wage, uh, fulfilling uh, employment and education and cultural programs and youth engagement programs. There's research that shows that these are the things that actually um, make us safer. And that in this moment, you know, when we're in the biggest economic crisis of our generation, people are facing a looming eviction um, crisis, like just more unemployed people than in my lifetime or you know most people who are still alive right now's lifetime um, just people more food insecurity like giant lines at food banks yeah. every day like yeah. we are in an economic pressure cooker and then on top of that there's a deadly virus that's like killing people in our families and our communities and our neighbors and like decimating and devastating and i think we we need to focus on the deaths cuz there's astronomical But also there's like the long-term disability of people who had COVID and are still recovering or still disabled by it. And then all of us trying to kind of, plus parents trying to homeschool kids and all, and kids trying to being like, oh my God, i never spent this much time in my house and my house is a violent place and now I'm stuck in it. And so like, there's so much uh, pressure going on right now in terms of economic conditions and, uh, and, and pandemic conditions and in some places climate conditions and and all the conditions that um the previous administration like exacerbated um that the pressure cooker it it increases it amps up the violence and then people are like oh my god rates of violence are going up and domestic violence going up and gun violence is going up it's like oh my god have you looked at the pressure cooker we're living under like Mm -hmm. people are like, earlier today, there was people, like, yelling at each other at the top of the lungs on my street, and I, you know, popped my head out the window just to make sure the cops weren't there, and if they were, to go cop watch. Um, but people are just hot. Like, it's just yeah. stressful. Like, and stress produces stressful responses, right? And, mm-hmm. um... So there's definitely evidence that if you alleviate the stress, if you take off the stress, if you make it possible for people to leave a place that's not safe, if you make it possible for people to earn um, money in work that is, you know, safe and not risking their lives every day, um, etc., cetera, et cetera, that violence rates go down. And the fact is, we live in a patriarchal society. We live in a homophobic, transphobic, um, ableist, uh, xenophobic society and violence occurs Um, and it will continue even under ideal um, economic conditions because systems of power and privilege um, and systemic uh, structures that support them continue to exist. So we have to um, make sure that we find ways to address that violence. The problem is that all the ways that we address that violence now just reinforce those structures, right? And so um, we, well, that's not true, all the ways that are funded To address the violence now, reinforce those structures. There are many ways people are addressing violence in communities that don't reinforce those structures and are are liberatory. They're just not funded and they're not validated. um, Mm -hmm. Unless, as you're saying, Kim, you know, that you can prove through your evidence based study that, you know, your neighborhood block association, you know, rapid response to each other's crises is like working on a peer.
0: You or know, it works. On, it works in every situation exactly. Like I could possibly come up with hypothetically
1: exactly all the time yeah. and never yeah. make mis- never <laughs> make a mistake. Never <laughs> make you yeah. yeah. I mean, out there making mistakes all day every day, killing people, beating people, arresting the wrong person. Yeah. but we don't. That's the your thing must be perfect. <laughs> your community-based thing
2: yeah. must be yeah. perfect. We don't. You know, unlike the police department, we don't have. Um. You know, we don't have fully funded academic departments that are studying these issues right nice. and right. Like, <laughs> or a whole propaganda machine Criminal so. you know, justice departments that are doing their thing over there and you know cop academies and whatever exactly, exactly. and uh and the rest of us are basically doing you know uh mutual aid um even before it was you know we were using that phrase and um supporting people uh directly and addressing people's material you know uh conditions in all the ways that people need to have those things addressed um, to help them not just survive, but you know, to hopefully do a little bit better than just surviving and um, we didn't have time to take fucking notes. Like, exactly. <laughs> 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 i like, I
1: put it on Twitter sometimes, it's like, we didn't have time to take fucking notes, a memoir.
2: <laughs> <laughs> like who, you know, like, okay, yeah, we're, we're just going to go back and transcribe the no, like that's just not how it happens it's yep. like okay if you know somebody needs you know um it needs help with you know child care or whatever you just go and help with child care and that's right. it you know and you're not really thinking about all of the different ways that this you know amounts to the kind of you know um community-based uh strategies that right. you know that people need right? right and those are the things that really you know th- that are really helping people and that are reducing harm and you know and all the things. So it's just, I, I find it really super frustrating, um, you know, when, when those demands are made of, you know, people who are already suffering and struggling and are, you know, um, it, it, suffering in so many different ways. Because it's not like, you know, COVID bypasses them. Those, you know, right. folks who are, you know, housing insecure and um, and food insecure and all of these things are also they're suffering from COVID themselves or have people in their own families and, oh. you know, in communities suffering from COVID. So it's like the impact is, you know, double, triple, quadruple, you know, what it might be for someone who is, you know, working a full time job and has health care and all of the things, you know, all of their material needs are are being addressed, um, you know, or perhaps better addressed, uh, than, than other people. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I could go on and on and on with that. It's so um, true.
1: it's so true. It's so true. So I think, I think the, the, the point that we're trying to make there is that I think also that, um, you know, funders tend to be divided into the ones who fund services and the ones mm-hmm. who fund systemic change. And in this moment, they're trying to figure out, okay, how do we address this Thing around you know defunding the police um and building community safety we have to pick a lane we have to decide whether we're going to fund services or whether we're going to fund um groups doing mutual aid and and trying to do budget advocacy around the police and the answer is both right um, yeah. it's not it you both don't know, it's not just about, exactly it's not just about housing um, and funding housing advocates and and uh people fund fighting for more money for housing, you're gonna have to fund something. And I've said this to funders directly, they're gonna have to fund something that's someone's that something's gonna go wrong. Yep. And yep. The thing is, we're all funding Absolutely. something where things go wrong every day. Like a thousand so,
2: people so, a year are killed deadly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs>
1: people are
2: like, yeah, blue lives matter. Right, right. That's the thing, right? It's like It's like
1: literally, you know, a thousand people are killed by police every year. So that's a thousand times things went wrong. Someone died when the police were the answer. Um, You know, cops engage in sexual violence and rape people. Um, One study found cops um, commit an act of sexual violence on average every um, five days. So every five days, something's going terribly wrong when a cop is involved, right, in terms of sexual mm-hmm. violence, because that's definitely not in their job description. Well, I mean, it's in their unofficial job description. It's not in their mm-hmm. official one. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So things are going wrong. All and Plus, there's like, you know, 43% of domestic violence survivors never call the cops at all because they don't think it'll be helpful or they're afraid of what will happen to them or someone yeah. who they love. And... Two thirds of people who experience sexual assault never tell anyone about what happened to them, much less a cop. So there's a whole bunch of things that are not working right now that we never talk about. So that's one thing. But the thing what we're trying to say is that you're going to have to fund people to do experiments and you're going to have to be okay with, you know, the people's response went terribly wrong in this instance, because we're going to be learning from that and we're going to be doing our best to not do it again. And we're going to be doing our best to, keep iterating until we get mm. to something that works for a community and it's still not going to work hundred percent of the time. And funders, like you said, Kim, back to what you said, like funders are like, well, we'll fund it if it's been proven to work across the country and it's a proven model. And then they grab onto one model that works in one place under one set of conditions and one set of relationships. And they're like, great, we'll replicate this across the country and fund it across the country. Or, we'll you know, someone needs- we'll exactly. Or, or <laughs> someone needs to build an alternative to nine one one. Well,
2: what? Oh my god. It's like, so exhausting.
1: Exactly. You're right. Miriam <laughs> like and I are often like, "Oh my god, we're exhausted." But you know, <laughs> building, so building a new world is exhausting, and it is. And, it is. Um, but it's good work, um, and I think we just have to stay focused on. it. But yeah, I think that that whole back to the that point in the report, it was really just about mm-hmm. saying like, you're gonna have to put resources into all of these things. And I think another mm-hmm. point in the report um, is um, there's, um, there's no one size fits all answer. And also there's no urgency. We don't, we're not supposed to come up with it by tomorrow. It's not gonna come up by tomorrow, right? So, but in the meantime, mm-hmm. you could put money into all the things you defunded out last year, right? Like you defunded yep. libraries, you defunded healthcare. Our governor Cuomo in in New York defunded healthcare at the beginning of a pandemic. Like, just it was uh, the first Wicked. thing he did in his budget Wicked was shit. cut funding for medical care <laughs> as a pandemic was unfolding over New York City. And so, like, refund all the things that you've been cutting, and fund us to figure out other things that you know to fill gaps where and and also to fund the things that are working now yeah. that don't have any resources um, yeah. and don't don't sort of wring your hands and throw your hands up in the air being like, I don't know, is the answer more services and meeting material needs? Or is Mm -hmm. the answer, you know, coming up with, you know, someone to call for everything? Because that's the other thing that the report talks about is like one of the key questions going forward is like, what is the role of the state? Like, do Mm -hmm. we actually need to have someone to call for every problem? Or is there not some responsibility that we all have to each other for each other's safety? Whether Mm -hmm. it's wearing Mm -hmm. a mask, or that when my neighbor, when I hear a sound at my neighbor, I don't call the police who might then come and kill them. Right, right. I yep. figure out, know my neighbor <laughs> enough to know when to go over there and when not to. You know, I had a neighbor who was uh, had a long history of domestic violence and made her decision to to about what was safest for her. And, and so her, I just said, what do you want me to do next time I hear something? She said, you know, this, that, and the other, and that's what I do. And that's, you know, and it definitely was not called the cops because she was undocumented. So
2: um, there's. And that's real. And that's the the thing that makes a lot of people uncomfortable is that they hear that and you're like, well, no, you have to, you have to intervene. It's like you, and it's like, no, actually you don't. You have to listen to what it is that people want and need because, you know, intervening has other implications beyond what you can see. Exactly. You don't have to have someone to call. And then
1: also, you know, what I took from that experience, too, is it's my job to fight for undocumented folks to be able to call somewhere that doesn't involve the police. It's my job to fight for affordable quality, accessible housing for seniors because part of the reason she stayed is because she had nowhere else to go and she was just yep. attached to this man economically and at that point of mm-hmm. her life just couldn't do anything else. Um, and it's my job to, you know, make it, have the community make it so that every time someone talks to dude, they're like, you know, what you're doing at home is not okay. It's not okay what's going on. And that needs to stop, right? In a way that's safe based on what, um, you know, she's experiencing. So there's so many ways that, It's also about saying we need to take responsibility, um, that we don't always have to have someone to call, and also that we need to build our skills. Um, So I don't think that someone who, you know, doesn't know anything about domestic violence should be necessarily, I mean, look, we don't need all DD professionals, but we need to educate ourselves a little bit, right, (laughs) and understand, um, you know, and build some skills around de-escalation, around conflict resolution, about understanding, you know, patterns and cycles of violence, and there's lots of stuff around bystander intervention, there's just lots of ways that we could be skilling up. People, every lots of people take CPR courses, right, like, they're like, I want to learn CPR in case somebody needs something why don't you learn emotional CPR in case yeah. your neighbor's having a mental health crisis and maybe that would save the cops from showing up. Yep. yep right? Absolutely. And so I think that people have instincts sometimes to learn these skills and get certified in certain things because they they feel a responsibility or want to be helpful to their community. And I think that we need to just sort of figure out. And not everyone needs to do the same thing, right? Like I'm not so exactly. great with kids. I'm not so great with kids. So maybe I'm not the person you put on childcare duty. But you know, yep. I could clean up after the kids. I'm good at that. Like or you know, <laughs> um good yeah, exactly. at shopping for the kids. Whatever it is that like we all have different functions. We don't all yeah. need to be the same kind of person. We don't all need to be skilled, transformative justice mediator, experts Mm -hmm. who can hold circles for years to transform the conditions that are producing violence in a family or community. Like we don't all need to be that. um, We need to all be part of creating the conditions where um, people like that can work and be successful at their work and people can feel held and supported in their community. And I think that's that's where um, the report is kind of pointing us to um, Mm -hmm. instead of sort of always thinking that we should have someone to call.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that that was like really incredible and, um, you know, just kind of like a, a a natural place to, you know, to, to wrap it up. Um, really, because, you know, one, um, we're encouraging folks to, you know, go read this report as well as, you know, the 2020 report and the, um, or toolkit and the other toolkits that, uh, you talk about in the report.
0: I, I also wanted to add, you know, particularly thinking back on the last year of protests and at the, you know, I guess the heightened visibility of black trans women in those protests and their needs and the issues facing them. I did, you know, definitely wanna to shout out your book, Invisible No More. You know, I, I recommended that book as a primer on policing and issues of race and gender to a lot of people over the summer. And I know we didn't get to talk about it and, and a lot of the issues in that, but I just wanted to recommend that to folks who are, are looking for more resources on, on sort of uh, on policing and the way it manifests itself in different ways. So, um, and
1: folks can go to invisiblenomorebook.com um, yes. and find out information about the book, but also what's there is a study guide, um, which is basically your your cheat sheet, so you can just find out what's in the book without reading the book and i mean obviously the book has more stuff in it but it's it's the thing you want if you want to get the information fast and there's lots of exercises and fact sheets and other tools there for folks to explore the issues beyond just reading a you know 250 page book
0: yeah and andrea thank you so much not you know not only for joining us today and and having this conversation but for the work you all are doing over there um admire it and i appreciate it and keep it up thank you so much thank you so much for having us
2: Learned so much from you and from yeah. Mario in years. I, I was yep. just calling someone that earlier today. I'm like, you know, if if it hadn't been for the work that you both have done and are doing, um, I don't think I would be where I am. And, you know, um, I, I, if you don't know, um, I have two sons that are currently serving life in prison and um, I'm not sure I would be able to um, continue with the work that I've been doing and uh, being able to deal with that situation had I not learned so much from both of you. So I'm really, really um, grateful for everything you do.
1: I'm so grateful to you for sharing that. I feel like the work we we do, we wanna be in support of and in service of people who are um, living the, the very painful realities that our current approach to safety, which doesn't generate safety, but generates a lot of suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, people who are, who are really sort of living with that day to day, we want to be supportive of service. And um, something that folks could link to, I'm sure you, you've talked about it before, Kim, but mm-hmm. there's a, a report called Because She's Powerful, that mm-hmm. talks about women who are supporting incarcerated loved ones. And the ways in which that takes a toll on people and also the ways in which people are resisting and surviving together. So um, it's put out by a group called the SE Justice Group there in California. But um, the report, I think, has a lot of relevance nationally. So if folks want to think about more about the issues that Kim was talking about, there's more in there.
2: It's something that, you know, we definitely we talk about on the podcast um, all the time. But uh, yeah, we have a mind to, you know, really highlight those issues even yeah. more because it's not something that people discuss, um, yeah. you know, a lot in in this space, even in this space. We're yeah. not yeah. Really talking about, you know, the experiences of, you know, um, caregivers, women, um, you know, that have uh, people inside and, right. you know, and do that work for decades, right? Like decades. So um, absolutely. So thank you for uh, reminding us of that. And uh, yeah. All right. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to Beyond Prisons. If you find our work valuable, we ask that you head over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review and subscribe to Beyond Prisons. You can support our work by sharing this and past episodes on social media. If you're financially able to support us, you can do so for as little as $1 per month over on Patreon at patreon.com backslash We recently launched our new website, www.beyond-prisons.com. There you will find a Beyond Prisons guide for supporting prisoners during the COVID-19 crisis, including a link to a downloadable PDF in small and large print formats. There's also a section on mutual aid projects that we update frequently and a list of demands that includes a call for the immediate release of prisoners. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can drop us a line at beyondprisonspodcast at gmail.com.
0: Beyond Prisons is created and hosted by Kim Wilson and Brian Sonstein. Ellis Maxwell edits our episodes, and Victoria Nam manages our website and volunteers. The music is by Jared Ware. We'd like to give a special thanks to our many volunteers who are helping us transcribe our episodes to make them more accessible, as well as our donors who provide 100% of the funding for this show. We really appreciate your support. Thanks for listening.